0: Well, I began this new year of 2024 with a promise to, in this 40th year of my ministry here, endeavor to give you plenty more in 24. That was my idea. Plenty more in 2024. And it's an interesting thing. You make a statement like that, and you have a desire for such a thing, and then you find that you're getting slowed out, and you're getting sicked out with sickness and snow that have uh, kind of inhibited our ability to meet and also inhibited, to some degree, our ability to make a whole lot of progress in our studies in the Lord's Day mornings in the 19th Psalm. And the reason why we haven't made as much progress as I would like to make is that each time we've met, I've looked at faces that haven't been here the previous week, so I felt something of a need to get you all caught up so that we could proceed together. And so um, we're just a bit behind Uh, expectations due to snowy days and uh, due to a goodly number of folks that have gotten sick in our church. But um, what originally was proposed to be a series of messages that would take us through the month of January, it just appears to me, unless I'm going to rush through the rest of it, it's going to take a little bit longer. We'll have a couple weeks in February. We'll also be in Psalm 19. But this is not necessarily a bad thing. Psalm 19 is worthy of careful examination. It's good not to rush things, just to keep on a schedule. Because I think to do that would simply rob us of important truths that should capture our attention and captivate our minds. This is a psalm that, as we've said, is central to a whole cluster of psalms that surround it. Beginning in Psalm 15, going to Psalm 24, there are a constellation of ideas that are brought to our, our attention to which Psalm 19 is central, and those concerns have to do with matters. And what I did, I gave you this in a kind of a loose way, and I decided I'm going to take Psalm 19 and bring it to a group of pastors that are going to be meeting in February up in Dolgeville, and uh, just trying to reformulate it just to be a little bit clearer, uh, i I formulated in terms of these surrounding psalms, these psalms that circle about it, are matters that are addressed such as our, I gave it all A's. First of all, our approach to God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall meet God in his holy tent? Is the entry psalms, or the approach psalms, that tell us we need clean hands and a pure heart to come before the living God. So, we have a matter of approach in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. And then secondly, we have questions do, dealing with our, the adequacy of God to every need of His people. That God is the adequate God. And we see that very clearly in the 23rd Psalm, which is the Shepherd Psalm. I shall not want. He leaves me beside uh, still waters. He, he, he uh, restores my soul. He is the God who is all adequate for us as a shepherd who leads and guides and teaches and restores and heals and does all those things for us. On the other side, Psalm 16, presents God not so much as a shepherd, but as our portion, our inheritance, our lot. And even there, there's the fullness of our cup. Our cup runs over. In Psalm 23, he's our, he is our cup. The, the, the cup of God that he gives to us is filled with himself. He is the one who is, uh, causes our cup to run over. We have all these images, both in the 16th Psalm and in the 23rd Psalm, that speak of his adequacy. And then there is the 17th Psalm, in which a a man in the midst of deep distress is looking for God to set things right, looking for God to vindicate him. It meets on the other side, Psalm 22, where another sufferer sees the injustice of his sufferings as crying unto God for his help and his vindication. And so I view that now in my new little way of organizing it, is uh, acquittal by God. God acquits us of all of the charges that people bring against us. No help in God for you. You're not God's, uh, anything important in God's eyes, or God's heart, or God's concern, uh, to show that God does acquit his children. He does vindicate them. And then in Psalm 18, and in Psalm uh, 19 and 20, no 20 and 21, Remember Psalm 19 is the central center one. 20 and 21, those are psalms that all speak of the achievement of his grace, that brings us to triumph over all of our and his enemies. And, and so, as I put it all together, um, we have around this 19th psalm, these very important matters of our approach to God, understanding our adequacy in God, the, our acquittal by God, and all the achievements of His grace that we receive through Him. And central to that is the 19th Psalm, the Psalm that tells us about God making Himself known. We cannot approach Him, we cannot have any comfort in His adequacy, we cannot have any sense of His vindication or acquittal, or any sense of the achievements that His grace brings to us without His words without a revelation that God gives us of to us of himself. And this psalm that speaks of divine revelation is a psalm that, as we said, it brings together different kinds of psalms, what are called genres, different genres. There's a creation psalm that really opens up, like Psalm 8 and Psalm 104, are Psalms that speak of God's creation and our place within His creation. We're told in this Psalm that speaks of divine revelation that the heavens declare His glory and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. The first six verses address this matter of God's creation and our place in it. And then we saw that there's a Torah Psalm that we're going to begin to look at this morning. There's one similar to Psalm 1 that speaks about the lighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in this law day and night. And then the 119th Psalm, which is like 176 verses that celebrate the centrality of God's words, God's testimonies, God's statutes, God's ordinances. And you have that in miniature here in verses 7 to 11. And then finally it ends with a matter of lament or perhaps penitence, a man who is simply gripped by the reality of his transgressions and his sins uh, before such a God, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. This is recognition of our need for God's grace um, to keep from sin, to keep from transgression and it's an interesting thing, it says we see God's revelation of Himself in His creation, His revelation in His Word then He can't be indifferent to those issues. God has given us the words of His mouth and the meditations of His heart and so the psalm ends with that prayer. Let the, meditation, let the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It's almost like the first two sections that speak of creation and speaks of Scripture Those are the Psalms in which we see God in his words and in his world. And then the final section is having seen God, we recognize that he sees us. And we have to address those issues of the heart, those issues of sin, those issues of the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart. Being acceptable in your sight, so all these psalms seem at the surface. If you just and a lot of people just look at it and say, "Look, some guy just uh, took a bit here and then a bit there and a bit there from somewhere else and just put it all together and spliced it together and made one big concoction called the psalm." Psalm 19. Well, again, I don't know how these parts of the psalm originated. They may have been one writer just sat down and composed a psalm, or a group of writers, or David and his his. Uh, you know, those who led in the congregational worship and the book of Chronicles? I don't know. We don't know the origin. We just know that they're in the Bible. And we know they're authoritative truth. And we know that they're Psalms that we are to sing as the people of God in celebrating the God of creation, celebrating the God of the, of the Word, celebrating our need of Him and our seeking Him for His grace and His forgiveness and His help. Now this first section we've already looked at, this creation psalm, is comprised of these two sections. I just want to remind you that what the songwriter is doing is he's celebrating, first of all, the vastness of creation itself. The heavens, in all of its vastness, putting a firmament, an expanse within the heavens, as the creation account in Genesis tells us, speaks of the vastness of the heavens. When I consider that your heavens, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, He says in Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? When I see myself in your world, I'm so puny and small and insignificant. Lord, what am I in your sight? And again, again, that's the contemplation, that's considering the world. We come to that sense of the majesty of the God who created the world, the vastness of creation, and then in the vastness of creation, The recognition that the one who made that vast creation, he in his own being fills heaven and earth. There's no place you can go to flee from his spirit. He is in every place of the vastness of the universe. And so, in a real sense, that opening of the psalm tells us that all space is holy space. Now there's special times and special places where Jesus says, I will be in their midst when two or three are gathered together in my name. But that doesn't mean when we leave our fellowship, he's not with us. Oh, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, in every place, in all your pursuits, in all of your work, in all of your labors, through the week, and even on the Lord's Day. Six days you shall labor, you glorify God in... I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself here. (laughs) The matter of the sun, and it's taking its course through the the heavens as we saw last week that sets apart the reality of divine creation that through the sun that becomes for seasons and for days it becomes a matter of sacred time as well as sacred space that there are times when God says you labor, six days you shall labor but you shall labor to the Lord and then there's a seventh day that is a day for God and then even in each day it seems as if God came and communed, communed with Adam at the end of the day, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. His language of Genesis chapter 3. And so every time, every moment of all of our life is to be set apart, redeemed for the days of evil, setting, buying up every opportunity to serve Him because we see the creation of God as that which calls us to honor holy space and holy time. And the God who permeates all of space and all of time. Well that's what we've looked at thus far. And so this morning we're going to come on to look at the second major section of the psalm, what I called a Torah psalm. And I call it a Torah psalm because others have, for one reason. Secondly, because that's really one of the most general words for God's word. Torah is often used to translate the Hebrew word for law. I'm sorry, it's, it's, uh, it's trans- to the Hebrew word Torah gets translated in English as law. And we tend to associate uh, the Torah with, with the law. Uh, for instance, the law and the prophets. We think of the law as the books of Moses that pretty much highlight uh, legislation. You shall do this, you shouldn't do that. If you do this, here's what the penalty is. Um, but the reality is, this term Torah isn't just focused in upon matters of law or legislation. Um, in a broader sense, it means instruction. Instruction. I mean, it, it is an interesting thing to me that Torah is never used, as far as I know, I mean, maybe. May I shouldn't make this as a boast, but at least in the things I've looked at. I don't find that the Ten Commandments are called Torah. Isn't that interesting? You would think, law, well, Ten Commandments, they're synonymous. But actually, when the Ten Commandments are referred to in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, it's really called the Ten Words. It's the Ten Words that God spoke from Heaven. And at other points, it's called the Testimony, and I'll say more about that. But law and Uh, 10 commandments are are not necessarily or Torah and 10 commandments are not necessarily synonymous in fact the major use of the word Torah or law is that first major section of the Hebrew Bible our Old Testament, the five books of Moses it's called the law, Jesus showed them from the law the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning himself the law speaks to those five books of Moses but what are those five books about? well we think it's law God spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. That's in Exodus chapter 20. He spoke it again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we have all those other sections where legislation is given for the people of Israel. But the reality is that's a part of the five books, but it's hardly all. Those books contain narratives. In fact, Genesis is principally all narrative. Much of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the book of um, Exodus is is narrative. Uh, Numbers has much in the way of narrative. It has poetry, there are songs and psalms in those books, there's prophecy that's found in those books. And so when you call the first five books to Torah, you're not just meaning law, you're speaking of the totality of divine instruction. God comes to teach us, God comes to put us in a school, to show us his ways, to teach us his ways. In a real sense, Torah being divine instruction is synonymous with the inscripturated Word of God. Again, we don't have access so much to the things that God spoke to Moses when he was 40 days on the mountain with him at Sinai, but we do have access to what's in the Bible. We do have access to the inscripturated Word of God. And all the people that want to have extra-biblical revelation given to them in the, you know, three in the morning is their having an all-night prayer vigil, and they hear voices in their head. I usually hear voices at three in the morning as well. I don't always think it's, I don't ever think really it's God. But I often think, don't we have enough to do just to learn the Bible? I mean, to get responsible for more than what's in Scripture, I don't know that I need. Everything I need is really revealed to me in the Scriptures. And I don't know why God would say something more to me when I haven't even paid attention to all the things he said and what clearly is revealed to me in his word. And so we come to the book of God. The inscripturated word of God is what is set forth to us in this latter, in this middle part of the psalm. And the inscripturated word is given to Israel, yes. Um, oftentimes we make this theological distinction between the general revelation of creation and the special revelation of the Word, and that's not a bad distinction, but sometimes we think, well that general revelation is given to the people who don't know the Bible. We know the Bible as Christians, so what do we need general revelation for? How about for vision? <laughs> How about for for, uh, just seeing something of the awesomeness of God's world and being filled with a sense of his majesty you see this is a psalm that's sung by the people of God this is a psalm that, in other, in other words, the first part's not given to the Gentiles that don't have the Bible, that's where they get revelation and we get revelation from the the word no, both of these volumes of God's book volume 1 in creation, volume 2 in the Bible are for us to receive that revelation from both sources and to have our hearts and our minds captivated by the beauty and the wonder the wisdom and the power and the sovereignty and the goodness of the God of heaven and earth. These psalms are for our worship and the totality of them. And we need to learn to worship God in the light of both: the world and the word, creation and the Torah. Now the style of the psalm changes radically at this seventh verse. Again, verses one to six is a very elaborate poem with flowing style of poetry. Uh, verses seven and nine, it almost comes like a formula. It's very rigid. In it's perspective. There's a regularity of style. Just in terms of the parts of speech, you have a noun in every one of these six sections that describes Scripture in some way. And then that noun is followed by an adjective that describes the noun. And then the final thing is a print participle and a noun. That's the parts of speech. So you have the law of the Lord that's a noun. You have an adjective that says it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. And then you have the participle and the noun that says it restores the soul. It does something to the soul. It acts upon the soul in restoring the soul. And you have six statements that are like that. Scripture is identified as something. It's described as something. And then we read something of how it operates and works in the lives and in the hearts of the people of God. This regularity of the style has its benefits and particularly has a benefit for the preacher in that it gives him what preachers long to see, three divisions for a sermon. And so we have these three divisions in the noun, in the adjective, and in the noun, the participle, and the noun. Because you know what that gives us? It gives us this. It gives us the terms used for scripture. It gives us the traits that describe scripture. And it gives us the triumphs of the actions of Scripture. I worked hard getting those three T's together for you. But that's what's there. We have terms, we have a vocabulary of Scripture. Terms that describe what Scripture is. Then we have traits that describe Scripture, and then we have what it does, its triumphs, how it affects us in very real and concrete and transformative ways. Maybe I should have said the transforming nature of Scripture. That would give me a T also. But that's what you have, those three things. So let's begin. Let's begin by looking at the terms, the vocabulary of Scripture that this psalm gives us in verse 7 to verse 9 again the most general one of these terms is Torah that God's word is instruction I hear people complain well I don't know how to be a parent because there's no no manual written about it there's no manual written about how to have a happy or successful marriage, there's no manual written about how to live your life and I have to say to the contrary there is a manual As manufacturers give manuals for instruction as its use, which most of us guys ignore and just try to put it together without the instructions anyway, only to find out how much we have to. We do need the instructions, ultimately. God's given us a book of instruction, He's given us a book in which He condescends to be our teacher. Jesus was incarnate as the Word of the living God. To teach his disciples that they would be with him. They would hear his words. They would see his actions. And then they would speak his words to others. Teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded as part of the work of the Great Commission. We're to be taught of God. And then we're to be teachers of God to others. And it's the Torah that gives us the enablement To understand God's will and God's ways. To be good teachers. We all teach something by our lives. We all teach something by our words. The question is, do we teach truth? Or do we teach lies? Do we teach things that are deceptive? Or do we teach things that bring people to the knowledge of God? It's vital to be instructed in the right things. Paul says to Timothy, You've learned the sacred writings that are able To make you wise for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished to every good work. To be a Christian and to ignore the Bible is simply to botch the whole calling we have as God's people to be light and salt in the world to be effectively living for Christ, effectively communicating His truth to others, effectively showing forth the praises of the God who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We can't be a people cut off from the knowledge of God in His Word. we to be a people constantly feeding upon it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This we're a people that stand in need of instruction, right instruction, Good instruction, true instruction. And I can't always guarantee I'm going to give it to you, especially if I'm not deeply enmeshed in my own Bible. But you've got to be enmeshed in your own Bibles. Guess I come home on Sunday and I actually absolutely botched a thing. You have enough discernment and wisdom from your own Bible reading and your own Bible study. Then you meet me at the door and say, Pastor, I don't you must have had a really off day here, a bad week. So I don't just get what you just said, because that doesn't make any sense to me in the light of my own Bible reading. And I'm subject to you bringing me God's word to my attention where I've botched it. I heard some guy preaching one time saying that God gives him messages about people in the congregation because he's the pastor and he needs to know. <laughs> Well, I've been a pastor for 40 years, and I tell you, I don't always know. <laughs> I mean, that's, to me, the leading lesson I've learned, I don't know. But I need to learn. And we have a book of divine instruction that we may be in the school of Christ and learn His will and His ways to be able to live for His glory and able to teach us His will and ways also that's not the only term that's used in this vocabulary of Scripture. The second one is a testimony. Testimony. As I mentioned before, testimony is a term that's frequently associated with the Ten Commandments. It's called the testimony. You read in the book of Deuteronomy how the testimony was to be put into the Ark of the Covenant. It's the testimony. Why? Why is it called the testimony? Testimony. Well, think about the relationship between the Ten Commandments and this matter of the testimony put into the Ark of the Covenant it's the fact that originally God spoke it in words that were heard from a mountain the voice of God that the people couldn't endure Moses, you go up to the mountain, you get God's word we're just crippled with fear In the face of the God who has spoken in this way. But the fact that these commandments were first spoken with words from the mountain. And then their testimony inscribed on tablets of stone put into an ark. Seems to me that what testimony is, it's the inscripturation of the audible words of God the words that God spoke through the prophets into the ears of the people of Israel that when Isaiah sat down to write out his prophetic words for the instruction of God's people and future generations that that becomes testimony Isaiah's testimony of what God said but it begins with God but it becomes testimony when it's committed to writing Just like the Ten Commandments were committed to writing on tablets of stone. And so, it's a written transcript of the very words of God. So that, as Augustine said, what Scripture says, God says. What Scripture says is the inscripturation of the very words of God, it's testimony. And then the third thing is it's called precepts. And this word that's translated precepts is a, is a, a word that speaks of directions that have, are to be followed. It's kind of like a road map. If you needed to get to my house this morning and you didn't know where I lived, I might write you a little bit of a, a map. where You go this way, you go this way, you go this way, you go this way. And that would be precepts. You want to get to my house? I'll give you some precepts to get there. Here are some directions. Here are some directions. Well, God's precepts are directions to, faith, to arrive at the goal of faithful living. How, we, how might we live so as to please God? What are the things that God requires of us? God speaks them forth in the way of precepts. And so scripture is instruction, its testimony, its precepts or directions, then there are the commandments. God's authoritative orders. They're not just counsel, they're not just suggestions. These are the thou shalt's and the you shall not's. Scripture is authoritative. It makes its demands upon us. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's not to work our way into glory or to heaven but it's to demonstrate love. When your husband or your wife make known their desires and their will you can't be indifferent to that if you love them. I'm confronted with it every morning. I just want to leave my razor on the... the (laughs) on the sink I want to leave the toothpaste anywhere but I know if I do that when Jen walks in in the morning she's going to say man he must have been in a rush or else he's not thinking about me right I'm not going to tell her I'm thinking about her in the morning when I put the razor in the medicine chest and I put the toothpaste back in the top shelf I know where they go It's a matter of love. That we receive the authoritative will of another and we comply with their desires. Now the strangest of the terms that are used interestingly enough is the matter of fear. You see it in the words of verse 9. Again as you look down the list you have law, the Torah that's instruction, you have the testimony and scripturated words The precepts, the directions, the commandments, the authoritative orders. And then you have this matter of the fear. And that seems to be so remote from anything written or anything spoken to speak about fear. It speaks about an emotion. But I rather think that the understanding of why he places fear in this point as a description of or as a word that speaks of the terms for scripture is that when the people of Israel heard the voice of God speaking, from the mountain. What if there was some guy that wanted to come by and sell them, uh, well, I don't know, beer here? I think of baseball games, right? The guy that comes by wanted to sell you peanuts, wanted to sell you Cracker Jacks, wants to sell you beer. Well, there's a sense in which if you're tuned in on the game, you block all that out. Wait a minute, I'm watching Derek Jeter hit here. That's it. He has my attention completely exclusively. I've not been to a game yet with Aaron Judge. I imagine when he comes up, up I'm not going to be at the at the concession stand looking to get a hot dog. I'm going to be glued to him at the plate. He has my full attention. And I think that's what fear does. I, I fear missing this. I fear not, not being there when something occurs. I'm driven to have a rapt attention focused in upon this event. Focused in upon divine speaking. That excludes every other voice. And it's hearing God's voice fully and, and, and exclusively. And the thing is also in the wisdom literature. It speaks about in Proverbs and, and Job. How the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the beginning of knowledge. So having rapt attention, focused in upon a God who speaks in fear that I'm going to lose even a syllable of what he's spoken, is because I want to know him. I want to be wise before him. I want to be skillful in living unto him. It's out of a religious love and commitment to the God of heaven. I want to get the words and get them right. So turn off the noise. To listen to him. Then the final thing that said is says is rules. The rules. That's a word that speaks of judgments, discernments. It's words by which we will be judged. It's words by which we will stand or fall. Jesus says, He that hears these words of mine and does them will be likened unto a man who builds his house upon a rock. It is a matter of great Importance that God's rules not be ignored. We're, we're going to hear them again when we stand before His judgment throne and we're judged out of the books of the law. Or the, uh, the judged out of, uh, yeah, well, we're judged out of the books that we're told. That's the matter of have we heeded his, his words and done His will. And so I think if we look at all those terminology, this vocabulary of Scripture, You see its importance. You see its value. You see its necessity. We need instruction. We need to hear testimony, precepts that direct us, authoritative commandments that regulate our lives. We need to hear it in religious fear that we might gain wisdom and knowledge. We need to hear it as judgments that will meet us again. And we need to live our lives in the light of. And so those are some of the things that Scripture, that this um, psalm tells us about God's Word and its vital importance, its centrality, really all the issues of life. But now we have added to those terms traits, descriptives, descriptive words to describe the Scriptures and to me the most interesting thing about this part of these of this psalm is that these descriptive words, let me give them to you. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. That all those words that are here describing Scripture are also in other parts of the Bible used to describe God. God is perfect. God is sure or dependable or trustworthy. God is right, pure, clean, true and righteous all together. In fact, other passages in this very section make that very clear. Psalm 18 in verse 30 says, This God, His way is perfect. Same word. Same word. His way is perfect. Everything about our God is is perfect. It's complete. He's full. He lacks nothing. We lack everything. We stand in need of all things before Him, but He lacks nothing. And then what He speaks to us of His word is meant to fill us. It's meant to fill all the lack that's in us. It's made to teach us so that we will come to him and know him. His words are sure. They're trustworthy as he's trustworthy. We have a dependable God. His word will never deceive us. His word will never lead us astray. His word will never offer promises that are never kept. He's not deceitful. He's not devious. That's what it means that he—it's it, right. It's right. It's a word that speaks of something being straight rather than crooked. Ever travel on a road that's crooked? We took a trip over the Swiss Alps. I didn't notice that. When you have the little squiggly lines on the maps, that means you're going up. You're going up, and we're going up this mountain. (laughs) This the Alps now, guys. This is not just the Swabia. These are the Alps, and we're going up this mountain road with these hairpin turns this way and that way, and you know you can't see very far in front of you. And you make a turn, and you run into a You run into cows that are out grazing right on the road as you make that turn and everything can surprise you. God's not that way. God makes the way plain. He makes the way clear. Not crooked. Crookedness is connected with sin. You just never see what's up ahead. You live without a sense of consequence. You think you're invulnerable to any dangers. I'm good. I'm good you ever try to witness somebody to the gospel and I'm good, I'm good Well, maybe, maybe you think you are but do you really see the end? your way is crooked, you don't see the end you just see your next meal you just see your next high you just see your next whatever it is you're after and you never see the end but God's word gives us to see the end because God sees the end He is pure, clear of all defiling elements. He is clean, freed from filth and moral failings. He is true and righteous altogether. Whatever is said of Scripture in these descriptions can be said about God. It's His words. The words that proceed from His mouth proceed from His own being, His own essence. And they reflect the one who speaks them. And these words, when we feed upon them, are designed to conform us to God's image, to make us like God. These are words that because they are perfect and they are pure and they are right and they are clean and they are all these things that are described here, when they're received and they're lived in the light of, they transform us. They work effectually in those that believe. Jesus said, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not a, an inactive word. Again, it's interesting how the word for Scripture reflects who our God is. And you find the same thing in the book of Hebrews. book of Hebrews, in a couple of places, God is called the living God. The God who acts. The God who is not a dead idol. He's a God who is living, active, it goes on in chapter 4 to say the very same things of God's word, the word of God is living, and it's active, it's not a dead letter, when blessed by the spirit of God, it, it, it works to conform us to God's image, the words I speak to you, Jesus says are spirit and life, it's a life giving word, So, Scripture bears all of these traits to reveal God to us, to bring us to God in religious worship, in love, and faith, and then through its influence to conform us to Him, to make us like Him. And then you see how that works when you see how the things that Scripture affects, the triumphs of Scripture. Is seen and what it does. What does it do? Well, we begin with the law of the Lord that's perfect. What does it do? He says it restores the soul. In the ESV, it's revive the soul. Really, the root of the word is the word for repentance, it's the word for turning. It's God's word meets us wherever we are in our lives and it says leave that path turn out of the way of that path that path leads to death turn unto him it's the picture of the wandering sheep the Lord is our shepherd but he meets us as wandering sheep who have left the fold and his word comes to bring us back to return us to him to return us to be led of him to be loyal to him it's a word that speaks of turning, repenting having strayed from God to return back to God back in the early days as a Christian there were two radio shows one was called Back to the Bible and the other was called Back to God maybe they should have sued for the infringement of the name <laughs> it's really synonymous the back to God hour and the back to the Bible hour those different people and different companies I think a little bit of a different theology as well was in those two different groups but nonetheless the titles were synonymous coming back to God is coming back to the Bible coming back to his words coming back to be disciples to be taught, to be instructed to be transformed to have his word dwell in us richly his word brings us back it restores us to him and then to make wise the simple is that again as we naturally go astray all we like sheep have gone astray turned everyone to his own way and the word of God comes to restore us to bring us back well by nature we're naive we don't know right from wrong we're not morally mature we make all the wrong decisions left to ourselves. And that's what a simple person is. He's not prepared to live life in this world. He lives as a child. Wholly unprepared in the stuff of his own resources to live wisely, to live well. But it's God's Word that gives us holy discernment, understanding, wisdom, skill in living, to be able to make the right decisions, to exercise discernment, It's God's word, God's testimony, God's statutes, God's precepts, God's commandments that makes us capable of choosing well and choosing wisely. But then it not only restores the soul, brings us back to God and instructs the naive to bring us to moral maturity and understanding, to make the right decisions and to make the right choices and to do the right things. But this word of God's power, this active, living word of God, affects the depth of the emotions. It rejoices the heart. Then you stimulate the intellect. Now I, I'm, a, I'm a person who loves to have my mind stretched, to have my mind expanded. I like to search out meanings of things and words and the rest. I mean, you know me. You know that I love that stuff. But I need my heart warmed. <laughs> I need my inner life to be right as well. And it's the precepts of the Lord being right, being directing us clearly and straightly and not in a devious way that brings joy to the heart. The prophets understood this. Remember the prophet Ezekiel, he had the scroll, he was told to eat the scroll. It was bitter in his mouth, but then it became... A delight it became a delight Jeremiah the same way your words were found and I did eat them they became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart when Paul preached the word of God to the Gentiles it says they were made glad <laughs> they, they found a way to God, they found the way to life and the joy that we have at the outset of the Christian life, is something that doesn't die because you've been a Christian for a few years. Peter could write to a church and just assume these people that lived from the pure milk of the Word were people who rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Christians shouldn't just be. Moaning and groaning and complaining about all the troubles of a wicked world and all of the troubles of life when we have the blessings of so great a salvation testify to us again and again and again and again. I was mentioning in Sunday school that we need to impact the world in terms of what Paul speaks about the the, the Jews becoming jealous of the of the, what the Gentiles had in the way of faith you got to make them jealous by living in a way that shows them you have something of value that they don't possess. My brother told me that in the work that he has when he drives a car transporting people from place to place, there was a woman who evidently is not a Christian in the way that she comports herself. And yet she said to him one day, Why are you so happy all the time? What an open door of witness that became to say it's because of my knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The heart's made glad. And God's people live in the light of the joy and the peace we have in believing. And that meets us in every condition of life. Jesus said, blessed are you and they they persecute you for righteousness sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. If you have God's salvation and you have God's words, there's something to rejoice in at all times, all seasons, and all conditions. And it lightens the eyes. When our eyes behold the world as it is, it's distressing, isn't it? You see, misery... Sorrow, danger, distress, violence, war, famine, all the evils of life. It's bleak and desperate in a fallen world. But God's word comes even in the midst of the tragedies that do exist in the world. And it gives us something of light to, to, to deal with it, to understand that God's not more kind, or or less kind, or merciful, or concerned about the things we're concerned with. Even more He loves those who are distressed and the victims of violence and all the horrors of a fallen world. To come to Him, and to find refuge in Him, and to find consolation in the knowledge of Him, and then to pray to Him, and to seek His help and strength and blessing in the midst of all of the conditions of life that so distress us, you have to know we have someone that says, yeah, I know, I care, I'm not distant, I'm not far away, to have one who at every point was tested as we are, yet without sin, to come alongside and say, I know, I've lived in this world that you're living in and passing through. I pass through it, and I know the pain. I know the pain that you're enduring. I've been through it, I've seen it, i felt it, and I can be the one who helps you. And I can be the one who gives you strength in the midst of all the horrors of life. To have your eyes enlightened to the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of such a friend, the knowledge of such a great high priest, the knowledge of a God who cares. And then scripture triumphs in that it not only restores the soul and makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes, but then it endures forever. It's not just some temporal fix. It's unchanging truth. Always applicable, always relevant, always providing food for the soul, always providing sustenance for the weary. It's good in every generation, at all times, in all places. It's not just good for white Americans. It's not just good for, for black ghetto dwellers. It's not just good for the poor or the rich. It's good for all peoples, all places, all times. All of us need the Lord. And all of us need the word of His grace. And the final thing is it's true and righteous altogether. The matter of its being true is that it's faithful. It's a faithful word. it's unfailing. Not the best thing about the Bible is it's true. <laughs> not the best thing. It never leads us astray. Never leaves us disappointed. Never leaves, leaves us broken hearted. It heals the broken hearted. doesn't leave us broken hearted. puts things back together. Never to be ashamed. Never to be lamenting that we've trusted it too much. We've studied it too much. We've read it too much. You see, our regrets at the end of our lives is not going to be that we made too much of the Bible. It's going to be that we made too little of it. It didn't have the central place at many points in our lives as it did for the psalmist. And I would say one of the benefits of studying the 19th Psalm and the 1st Psalm and the 119th Psalm is that it simply brings us back to the reality of just how much we need this word and how much we will never be disappointed to be students of the word, digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the wonders and the mysteries and the glory and the goodness of the God of heaven and earth as he's made himself known, not only in the splendor of creation but in his holy words that address us as his people. Well God willing we have more to say and we will do that God willing next week. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father how thankful we are that we have your word that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. We're thankful, Father, that we could address the words of this psalm to just once again have our hearts and minds reflect anew upon the goodness that you demonstrate to a needy world and that you've given us a sure and a certain word that we don't have to be searching the heavens to find you. We don't have to be searching within our own hearts to find you. We don't need to be making explorations to distant galaxies to find you. But that you have drawn near in your word. you draw near to our hearts and our mouths that we might know your truth, confess your truth, live in the light of your truth, and have our hearts and minds sustained and helped and strengthened by the word of your grace. We're thankful for the scriptures and pray that we might be more diligent in our study of scripture, in our meditations upon your word, in our living in the light of your words. We pray that you'd bless your people to that end as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.